Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Appreciate you spending some time here. If you know a remarkable teacher here in the Valley that would deserve a check for $2,500, we have a program called Pay Tribute to a Teacher, brought to you by your Valley Toyota dealers. To nominate a teacher, just text the word teacher to 411923. That's teacher to 411923. You can nominate a teacher there. It's a great program. Uh, coming up this hour at 9.35, we are going to speak with Mike Angeloni, retired firefighter from New York. He's lived in Arizona for a long time, built a business here, but goes back every year for the memorials. Uh, he was also returned to New York after 9-11 and spent about 12 days, almost two weeks, uh, working in rescue and then recovery efforts on the rubble. So we will get his reflection on 9-11 from New York City at about 9.35 as we talk quite a bit about it as it had 21st anniversary happens on Sunday. Start this hour off with the border crisis. The governor was talking about the shipping container uh, barrier. And the headline of this story from uh, from the Arizona Republic, it's kind of odd to me. Uh, and here's why. I'll explain in a moment. Governor Doug Ducey touts shipping container barrier despite questions about its effectiveness. Um <laughs> It didn't fix the border problem. Uh, shocking as it sounds, putting up some of those shipping containers didn't fix the problem. Something else the governor did a couple of years ago, well, I would say more than a couple, a few years ago, was start the border strike force, which has expanded to other states around the country, uh, border states. Um, and the border strike force didn't solve the crime problem in our border. But what it did was assist local law enforcement, which is usually outmatched. By the cartels because of how bad the border is. So it didn't solve the fentanyl problem. It didn't solve the human trafficking problem. It didn't solve the heroin and the meth problem. But it helped. And it's necessary. Just like these shipping containers. No one thought that we were never going to see people cross the border in Yuma again. But everybody in charge in Yuma said it's helping. So this narrative about it didn't fix the problem, why did you do it, is, is silly. It's just like why did you start the border strike force? We still have fentanyl. We still have meth. We still have crime. It doesn't make sense to me. If it's helping and it's less expensive than other options and the federal government's not doing it so the state government has to, it may not be the end-all, be-all. But it helped. So I, I don't understand how you find a way to criticize just to, uh, to criticize. Um, but that's that's where it started. But I want you to hear something. This is uh, a councilwoman from Washington, D.C. And uh, she is cri- very critical of what Arizona and Texas have been doing by busing people into Washington, D.C. It's not the first part of what she says, but the second that is very telling It's been said, but it's worth reiterating, that the governors of Texas and Arizona have created this crisis. And the federal government has not stepped up to assist the District of Columbia. So we, um, along with our regional partners, will do what we've always done. We'll rise to the occasion. Isn't it interesting that she is accusing the governors of Arizona and Texas of causing this crisis? Does she mean the one in Washington, D.C. or the border crisis itself? But it's the next one. It's this. This to me. Now, this is a woman who has been in favor of and touted being a sanctuary status in Washington, D.C. They're a sanctuary city, and she is a proponent of that. 
Listen to this. We've learned from border towns like El Paso and Brownsville. And in many ways, the governors of Texas and Arizona have turned us into a border town. We don't know how long this will take to resolve. We don't know how long they will continue busing. And so the right thing to do here is to be prepared to ensure we can greet every bus. We can get people off on the right foot. We can get them where they want to go. And that will ultimately help them in their immigration process. Okay, a couple of things. First of all, the governors of Arizona and Texas have made Washington, D.C. a border town. So... You don't want to be a border town? I thought you said there was nothing wrong with the border towns. You know, you're you're blaming Arizona and Texas for saying don't send these people here as if that's a horrible thing to say. The other part is you're going to bust them to where they want to go. So is Arizona and Texas. These are people that are signing waivers saying they want to go to Washington, D.C. I just love them twisting themselves into a pretzel to try to uh, criticize this. And then blame Arizona and Texas. This falls at the feet of the federal authorities that are doing nothing about it. Period. It is their job and they're doing nothing about it. And then uh, lastly, uh, well, I shouldn't say lastly, but almost lastly, the mayor of Chicago is found a way in that sanctuary city. They have found a way to deal with their problem when uh, migrants are bussed into Chicago. They're putting them on other buses and sending them to the suburbs of Chicago. So uh, Lori Lightfoot in the sanctuary city of Chicago is, is overwhelmed. So they're sending they are sending people somewhere else. Arizona and Texas should not be doing this, but we're going to. We have no choice. Arizona and Texas, they have a choice. But not us. And lastly, uh, Governor DeSantis in uh, Florida said that he is going to begin busing illegal migrants who arrive in Florida to the uh, president's home state of Delaware. So um, this to me is just a cycle now that I think eventually the message is going to get out. And I think people are going to understand that something needs to be done. And will it and how quickly what will be done? The midterm election should be a lot more about issues like this. Um, I want humane treatment of people just like everyone else does. But there is no humane tra- – it's not as if they are being treated humanely until they get to Arizona and Texas. And then all of a sudden they're being treated horribly by the governors and by the governments of the states of Arizona and Texas. This is the, this is the hypocrisy in their statements. The cartels are treating people like cargo. 750 people dead in the deserts and in, in Texas crossing the river, crossing the Rio. Grand in a year, setting a record. And now they're blaming Arizona and Texas. Just doesn't make any sense to me. None whatsoever. In a moment, um, the correlation between COVID-19 practices a year or so ago and school test scores and dropout rates. Wait until you hear what one Arizona school district and how much their dropout rate has increased. It's all coming up in a few moments. (laughs) 
Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Coming up about 15 minutes from right now, we are going to speak with a man named Mike Angeloni, who retired from the New York Fire Department uh, in the 90s, but uh, went back right after the 9-11 happened 21 years ago and spent a couple of weeks on the rubble with his former workmates uh, doing rescue and recovery work. Uh, he is in New York for the commemoration and for the for the um, memorial services. He goes back, I believe, every year. He'll be calling us at 935 as we talk a lot about 9-11 today because it will be 21 years on Sunday. Before we get there, let's talk a little bit about uh, about the U.S., about uh, where, where we are and what's necessary. I, when we learn things, as things progress, and I try to cut people a break, and what I mean by that is you can't expect people to get it right all the time. And people are do, sometimes people are doing their best with the information they have. When they dig their heels in, that's when it goes sideways. The governor of Kansas, her name is Laura Kelly, said she makes absolutely no apologies for closing schools during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. She was the first governor to order K-12 through schools to close for the remainder of the school year in 2020. Now, I understand then saying, based on the information I had, based on what the CDC was saying, we were told this was the best course of action, the best place, the best way to go. But with everything we've learned, in the past two years, two and a half years, whatever it is, um, you have to look back and say we overreacted, especially when it comes to young people. Um, I still track every week. I write down the numbers. Uh, I just went back through the numbers again. And you have to go back, I think, 12 weeks, 13 weeks to have a recorded death of people under the age of 20. And what happened was it was at 68, and then it went up to 70, and then over the next couple of weeks it went back down to 68 because it must have been either the ages were recorded wrong or the people had died of other causes. I don't know what it is. It ticked up to 69. There was one added this week of someone under the age of 20 in Arizona. To put that in perspective, and and this is just for perspective's sake, there have been 69 deaths uh, of people under the age of 20 with COVID-19. And again, we don't know if these are people that died with COVID or of COVID, and there is a significant difference. But the number is at 69 people. There is over 22,000 over the age of 65. So just for the sake of of who it is endangering, when uh, and I've talked about the and the only connection to HIV, I understand that they are contracted in completely different ways. But here's the connection to HIV. HIV turned into AIDS. AIDS was deadly. It was a killer. It was a death sentence if you were if you were tested HIV positive when it first hit the world. We overreacted dramatically, and it was necessary. Um, you know, the way that uh, crime scenes were cleaned up, accident scenes were cleaned up, the emergency rooms, doctors, um, police officers at crime scenes wearing full, you know, uh, hazmat gear because nobody knew for sure how this was going to be. If you could just touch something, uh, you know, some kind of bodily fluid, if you could just touch it. And as time went on, they realized who was the most susceptible. Intravenous drug users, unprotected sex, especially between men. That was 
that that was what was driving the highest numbers. And so those people were warned, you are at the highest risk. Protect yourself, protect yourself, protect yourself every time. Don't share needles if you're an intravenous drug user. All of these things happened. But what they did as information changed, they changed course on treatment and prevention. And here we are with all this information in front of us and the adverse effects of the isolation that came with school closures. Um, I want to there's a couple of of, of stories. Uh, Arizona test results show an increase in student scores. But by how much our test scores are still horrible and they dropped dramatically during covid-19. But how about this? The Tempe Union High School District to varying degrees in the last two years have seen the dropout rates go up um, while graduation rates slipped slightly but still remain above the statewide average. So in the Tempe Union High School District, they're seeing dropout rates go up. They're seeing graduation rates go down. And this is happening everywhere. We are seeing children fall further and further behind in school. We've talked with experts that say young people – and we're talking about young children are having their speech development stunted because masks have prevented them because it's not just hearing it. It's also reading people's lips as a way they learn to speak and how to say words, how to understand the words you're saying. And so we are seeing children at younger and younger ages having to go see speech therapists because their speech development is stunted. So we now know, and even if we didn't know it at the beginning, even if we couldn't have known it at the beginning, we now know that the adverse effects of what we've done with masks and with shutdowns and with uh, you know online learning has had a dramatic effect on young people. And instead of changing course based on that holistic look at the information we have, you still have hardliners um, that are are saying masks, 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 shut down schools, and it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. What we're going to do in a moment is uh, talk with Mike Angeloni. Mike Angeloni was retired from the fire department, FDNY, retired firefighter. He is back in New York. Um, after 9-11, he went back and worked on the rubble for a couple of weeks, and he was there for recovery. Uh, first was a rescue mission and then became a recovery mission. And uh, Mike worked on that pile of rubble back with his comrades and back with his his old uh, brothers and sisters in the fire department. And we're going to get some uh, recollection from him and some memories as he is in New York for the memorial services. So that's all happening next. American girls and American guys will always stand up and salute. We'll always recognize when strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Uh, we spend today throughout the show. We are memorializing what happened 21 years ago on Sunday, September 11th of 2001, um, where America was attacked. And uh, I couldn't think of a. I couldn't think of doing this without certain people being on the show when they're available. And joining us right now is Mike Angeloni. Mike is a former firefighter with the New York City with FDNY. And you're back in New York now, right, Mike? Yes, Mike. Uh, just got here this morning. So let's um, I know it's an emotional time for you. And uh, can you kind of walk us through because you were here in Arizona when it happened, but you made your way back to New York to help. Can you talk about what happened as you approached the World Trade Centers? Because you worked for so many years right down there in lower Manhattan, right? 
Uh, actually, I was in Midtown. Midtown, uh, but it was a yeah, it was a short run, you know, uh, compared to some of, uh, compared to where some of the guys had come from. Uh, we they brought in guys from everywhere, you know, when that happened. So uh, yeah, my company was. Uh, you know, pretty close to, I believe, the third alarm when, when that happened. And uh, and what can you say? You know, uh, when I approached, it was uh, the day after. And uh, as I came across the 59th Street Bridge, I mean, you could see in the distance the massive amount of work lights and unbelievable amount of smoke. And... Uh, I had to get through nine FBI checkpoints before I was able to work in what we called the pit at the time. And um, I got to the last one and they said, you need picture ID. And, you know, when I was a fireman, we didn't have picture ID. Yeah. We had badges and that was it. So just as they were about to turn me away, a chief walked by and said, he's with me. And I looked up and there was a guy that I uh went to the training academy with and he brought me and said mike where you heading and i said i've got to go see the chief and he brought me right to the tent and they put me to work how long were you there 12 days um can you describe as much as you can can you describe the feeling of being there because i i know you well enough to know that there's no place else you would have been at that time but what was that like knowing that you were digging in that rubble for people that you had worked with for decades well i guess i mean i i would say that most guys probably feel the same way it was I mean, you just felt like it was something you had to do, but as the time and the days went on, it was more and more discouraging because, you know, we didn't find very much. Um, and I remember I was there for about 36 hours, and at that point it dawned on me to call my wife because I hadn't even, you know, spoken to her since I left home. And, um, you know, she was just heartbroken when she heard my voice and how I sounded so distraught. Like, you know, I went there with the intention of trying to find people and, you know, we didn't, we didn't really find anyone. And you were, you were part of the, the, uh, the efforts when the bombing of the world trade center happened in the nineties, weren't you? Yes. That's actually, that was, uh, that was the last tour I worked at eight engine. Um, when that uh, trade center bombing happened and and then i retired right after that and then to have this happen it was you know i, I mean when it happened the feeling ran through my body that hey i gotta get there i, I don't know how i'm gonna do it but i've got to get there how, how did you do that because air didn't wasn't air traffic shut down by then how were you able to get a, a, a an airplane get a seat on a plane it was crazy uh you know i was well you know the people that you and I worked for at the time. Uh, I have keys to the uh, Hillstone restaurants in town, and uh, I pulled right into Bandera, saw it on the TV, you know, watched my uh, my knees buckle when I saw the first tower go down, and I headed right back home thinking I was going to try and get to New York, whether it be on a plane or just jump in the truck and start driving. And when I got home, my wife had already been on the phone for a couple hours and 
she managed to get me on the first flight out to Long Island because LaGuardia and Kennedy Airport had shut down. Um, nobody was getting across to George Washington from Newark, so I uh, flew into Long Island. A bunch of my buddies from the firehouse met me there, threw me in a car, and you know we work. We went right to work. And then uh, a lot of the guys, like myself, you know, retired guys that come in to help, we would try and take night shifts there so that the on-duty guys could work days, and then we'd sleep during the day. And that's what it was like for about 12 days until they changed it from a search and rescue mission to a recovery mission. When you go back to New York for these for the memorials and for the things that happen, um, I'm sure you get together with with friends that you had worked with for so long. Uh, is the emotion still the same? I mean, is it, I always say that the, the loss I've had, it, it never gets easier. It just gets easier to deal with. Yeah, I, I think that that pretty much sums it up, Mike. It's you know, I, I mean, it's great to see the guys you work shoulder to shoulder with, um, but it's also rough for us, you know, to see the, the guys we lost in our house, the guys we lost that had worked in our house with us for years and moved on. And there are about thirty guys that we were all real close to, and. Um, you know, it, it does. It hurts every year. It, it certainly, I mean, although it's great to see some of the guys, it's certainly not a trip where, you know, you look forward to, you do it out of obligation more than anything else. Have you ever talked with your wife about, uh, had you not retired from the fire department, that you very well would have been one of those uh, firefighters in that building or one of those buildings? Oh, yeah. I mean, she she says it as well as a lot of my close buddies that, you know, if I were in New York, I definitely would have been in there. Mike, I know this is tough. I know it's a tough weekend for you, um, and I, I am so appreciative of you sharing the story with the audience. I just think it's so important for people to understand and remember. You know, we've got people, we've got adults now that don't have a memory of it. It's been 21 years. They were babies when this happened, and keeping that memory alive, I think, out of respect for the loss that day, but for the courage in the days that followed, I think is so important, and your story is such an important part of that here in the Valley. Yeah, thanks, Mike. I appreciate that. You know, I always I always say to people, you know, when they talk about how many guys we lost, I always try and turn it around and say, well, I want you to stop for a minute and think about how many people we saved and how many people we got out of those buildings. And that's how I'd like you to remember the fire department. That is very well said, Mike. I hope you uh, I hope you have a great weekend uh, getting together with old friends. And, and I appreciate you calling in from New York and doing this. Anytime, Mike. Anything for you, buddy. All right, man. Thank you. That is uh, Mike Angeloni, retired from the from FDNY. You can hear the emotion in the voice, and uh, how, who could blame him? Uh, this is a somber weekend. Again, great to see old friends, but difficult for the reasons why you're going back. We're going to talk some more throughout the show about 9-11 uh, coming up in a moment. Uh, there's an interesting question about the presidency, and we'll tell you what that is coming up in just a few seconds. Values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. 
Hey, I appreciate you spending part of your day with us. It's uh, it's an emotional weekend for me because I have people that are so close to me, people I respect so much that were, when I say we all were directly impacted by 9-11, but the direct impact I'm talking about is losing people. As you just, if you were listening a few moments ago, and if not, I, I hope you'll go back and listen to the podcast with the guest we have today talking about 9-11. My most recent guest is Mike Angeloni, uh, FDNY, retired, went back on 9-11. In the day that right after 9-11 and spent 12 days working um, on what they called the pit and the rubble uh, in the search and rescue part of it. And um, uh, I've known Mike for years and years. He is he is the toughest individual I have ever met in my life. And uh, to hear him kind of at a loss for words because of the emotion of the time says a lot. He talked about losing 30 guys that he had been friends with for years and worked with for years. And so we're going to do it throughout the day. We are going to speak with a lieutenant named Timothy Klett, who is still with FDNY, Engine 88 in the Bronx. And uh, we're going to talk with him at 1035. And we're going to talk with him because he was there on 9-11. But the rebuilding of the, of, of FDNY, of first responders, you know, there were Port Authority cops who were police officers, other people that were lost that day. How do you rebuild public safety in New York with the loss of not only the horrific loss of life, but equipment and trying to keep that city safe and operational? So we're going to do that at 1035. Um, interesting question, though, before we close out the the uh, the hour, should there be an age limit on being president of the United States? Seventy three percent of Americans believe there should be a maximum age limit for elected officials among Democrats. Seventy one percent believe there should be a maximum age limit for elected officials. Seventy five of independents and seventy five percent of Republicans also agreed. When asked at what maximum age limit it should be, 70 was the choice most selected by respondents. 40, uh, 40% of those in favor of the age limit chose 70, 18% chose 80, and 26% of respondents who supported an age limit wanted people banned over 60 from serving in public office. Um, so this, you know, this goes back, of course, to President Biden and go back President Trump. Um, but it's it's elected officials in general. I think in uh, in general, I will tell you uh, with all candor, I have said this within the walls of my party, and I'm not a party official. I'm not, I have nothing to do with the Republican Party itself. I'm not a precinct committeeman or elected official. I vote Republican, but I'm not a party member. And I don't know how it is on – I guess maybe from the naked eye it is. Um, I think in both political parties, uh, they're just – they don't do it the right way, and I'll explain why. Every healthy corporation I know, every healthy organization I know is always looking at the generation that will replace them. You want to know why the NFL is an elite league and an elite organization. The NFL was bringing in new blood in the draft every single year. They have young coaches. You look at the the, the uh, Super Bowl champs. It didn't look so much like a Super Bowl champ last night. But the coach, how young that coaching staff is. You look at the Arizona Cardinals. You know, Cliff Kingsbury is, is a young man. Younger blood that you're training up to replace you eventually is how you keep an organization healthy. Major corporations, people on the boards of directors, chief executives are always looking at mentoring someone, mentoring a group of people that will eventually replace them. You look at American politics, and I can speak specifically in the Arizona Republican Party, is um, people never want to let go. There isn't a mentoring program. There is something, and I would I would suggest this for, for, uh, for all, all the ladies out there that want to be any way involved 
involved in politics. There is a training called Doty London Training, um, and it is uh, named after Doty London who is such a significant a figure in, in, in Republican politics in Arizona for years. Um, but that training is specifically for women that want to be involved, whether it's campaign specifically, a staffer, whatever it is. If you want to be involved, it is a really good training program for people. And look into it if you want to be involved. But other than that, within the party, it's not like you are seeing people. And maybe it happens and I've not seen it. But when you look at someone like a Nancy Pelosi on the on the Democratic side or you look at um, – uh, Mitch McConnell on the Republican side, people that have been in, in the Congress forever, all the years that Joe Biden spent there, even, you know, John McCain, all the years they spend in American politics. You look here in the state of Arizona and we it doesn't seem like we are training up the next generation. My favorite example of, of what it should look like is Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan in the 1960s, he spoke out on behalf of Barry Goldwater. He gave a speech called A Time for Choosing that raised like a million bucks for Goldwater's campaign. And people looked around and said, man. Man, who is this Reagan guy? He's going to be something. He then went on to become governor of California, and he did all these other things. Then he became president, but he didn't truly become the Ronald Reagan we know uh, until 1984. You're talking about a 20-year time period of growth. We have people now, and I understand people don't want politicians, but at the same time, you have to have people that have substance. You have to have people that have training and know what they're doing. You have to have people that are being mentored, and that's in every organization. So the age limit I understand, but I think it comes from a place that we are not training up that younger generation at the rate that we should. What we're going to do just after 10 o'clock um, we are going to be listening. We are expecting the King of England, King Charles III, will speak to the world. We're going to cover that coming up in just a few moments.